If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Catholic emancipation touched something in him, and he thought that by allowing it, he was breaking his coronation oath as a Protestant monarch to uphold the Protestant religion and the Protestant succession. And so he said no. He had to make his minister's promise never to bring it up with him again. That was Antonia Fraser describing George III's feelings about Catholic emancipation. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from the distinguished, multiple award-winning historian and author Antonia Fraser, whose latest book, published just a couple of weeks ago, is The King and the Catholics, The Fight for Rights, 1829. She's been speaking to our Deputy Digital Editor, Eleanor Evans. I'm thrilled to be talking with award-winning biographer and author Lady Antonia Fraser, who's written many biographies of many major historical figures, from Mary Queen of Scots to Charles II to Marie Antoinette. Your latest book, The King and the Catholics, examines the story of Catholic emancipation in the late 18th and early 19th century. You choose to begin with the Gordon riots, um, a bloody protest against Catholic Relief Act of June 1778. Perhaps we could start by talking about what the situation was for Catholics in the British Isles before 1778. The situation for Catholics was really quite horrifying. Um, they couldn't vote, they couldn't sit in Parliament, they couldn't be magistrates, they couldn't have commissions in the army, they couldn't get degrees at university, they couldn't get married in a Catholic church. Catholic churches were supposed not to exist. So two Catholics getting married had to have a sort of fake Protestant ceremony. If they didn't, it wasn't legal with all the consequences of finance. Um, Inheritance was very tricky in tax laws, And if you were a member of a Catholic family, you could suddenly say, I'm a Protestant, by the way, and inherit everything. And there was a famous case where a widow 
a Catholic widow, rich Catholic widow, found when her husband died, all her property was taken by her Protestant brother-in-law. You know, that was the a priest. If somebody discovered someone was a Catholic priest, he could get life imprisonment. They were absolutely extraordinary, um, these penalties, you know. And um, what happened in 1778 was a very light relief. So... In response to this light relief, then, we see these uh, very bloody, quite brutal um, riots, now known as the Gordon Riots in 1780. Um, Could you perhaps tell us a bit about Lord Gordon and and how these riots came about, the anti-Catholic feeling that spurred them on? Lord George Gordon was a very interesting character, although if I'd been a Catholic in London, I might not have Mm. felt that. He was the son of a duke, um, Scottish aristocrat, um, he had very strong views, but some of them were quite what we would call liberal. You know, he was against slavery. He'd been in the Navy and he thought the rights of the seamen were important. But he had an obsession against Catholics and he wasn't the only one. There was an enormous tide of anti-Catholic feeling. And we have to remember that we, Britain, have been fighting Catholic powers like France, Spain, the Armada, and they were our hereditary enemies, so there was a feeling that Catholics were the other. Catholics were also um, barbarian Irish papists, <laughs> um, very often Irish, because three-quarters of Ireland was papist, Catholic, we should say. Um, so there was a feeling of, of the other, and it can be compared to other sort of irrational feelings against the whole people, of which, alas, there are all too many in history. What can you say about your own conversion to Catholicism and how it informed or drove you to this subject? I had a slightly complicated family history. My father was um, Church of England, or rather Church of Ireland, and my mother was a Unitarian. Um, Neither of them appeared to have much religion when I was a child. Uh, My father became a Catholic when I was eight, my mother when I was 13. Um, and I was then sent to a Catholic school to see if I'd like to be a Catholic, St Mary's Ascot, which was then nuns, and I wanted to be a Catholic anyway. I was delighted to be a Catholic, and it hit me at about the same time as my obsession with history. So the two got together, and that's how, for instance, um, I came to write about the gunpowder plot. But also, being a Catholic has been very important in my various historical writings. I mean, Mary, Queen of Scots, was, of course, a Catholic, and that was very important in a real way in her life. Um, Marie Antoinette, a Catholic, who became increasingly Catholic in adversity, and the Six Wives, Henry VIII, you know, as we all know, the changes of religion. So I think it was not only being a Catholic that was helpful, but also in a funny way, having also been a Protestant, I think if you're writing about times where people change their religion and religion um, can lead to strange consequences, even quite violent ones, it's rather good um, to have experience, even though, of course, I was very young, experience of being another religion was quite a good thing. Anyhow, I consider I was lucky to be given the choice and lucky in the choice I made. I, I've always um, loved Catholic history. So when I 
became a historian, I wanted to write about some major event. And the gunpowder plot is an extraordinary event, apart from being very exciting. Um, Houses of Parliament might have been blown up. But also, um, it was an event where the Catholics, some of them were to blame. I believe there was a plot, but certainly not all of them, and certainly not the Catholic priests who got blamed for a lot of it. And um, it, but it left a residue, although it didn't work, they were captured, left a residue of anti-Catholic feeling, you know, they might do it again. And um, in the late 17th century, there was a popish plot, so-called, which was a fantasy, you know, and people, peers were arrested, put in the Tower of London for the rest of their life, or people were hanged and executed for a plot which really didn't exist. Uh, another example, slightly earlier, the Great Fire of London. There was actually a monument put up uh, mentioning the wicked papist who caused it. Again, complete nonsense. And it's the way prejudice can grow against a whole people. Um, that's one point of view. And the other point of view is people have a right to their own religion. These two opposing things has really um, fascinated me and why I wanted to write the book. Perhaps we could talk then about the reaction of uh, King George III, who was the sitting monarch at the time, and his reaction to the Gordon riots. King George III um, behaved very well, as we would say, by modern standards about the Gordon riots. He said, my subjects are not to be ill-used, you know. He was also, we must remember, extremely friendly with lots of Catholic aristocrats. And after describing the Gordon riots, I deliberately turned to describing a visit he paid to Thorndon Hall in Essex, the house of Lord Peter, a Catholic grandee, where they were tremendously well entertained. Peters were extremely generous, you know, and the king came with Queen Charlotte. These are the Catholics um, who later, he says, we can't have Catholic emancipation. And it was in a different part of his brain, really. We can never know how much of his undoubted um, mental disability, whether it was porphyria or whether it was bipolar, it doesn't matter. The fact was that Catholic emancipation touched something in him and he thought that by allowing it, he was breaking his coronation oath as a Protestant monarch to uphold the Protestant religion and the Protestant succession. And so he said no. He had to make his minister's promise never to bring it up with him again, which was pretty vehement, um, given the situation in Ireland, um, where, as I say, three-quarters of the population were Catholic. Um, but he wouldn't have it, you know. He more or less threatened to go mad again, but that is to imply he controlled his own madness. But he meant it. He said, you can't believe the anxiety this causes him. And much later, one of his sons... Um, said, you know, this caused him real illness, this question. And it was a question, and let's be fair, it was a question of conscience. He really did believe his conscience told him he shouldn't allow Catholics to have rights, in spite of them being his friends. Um, I wonder if we could talk about the, um, the idea of the veto. Um, and could you explain for our listeners who might not be familiar with that term what the veto means, um, both in terms of the British monarchy and how it played a part in this? Yes, the veto, I mean, it's very difficult for us to, to take in because we don't have such a thing. The veto meant literally the ability of the King of 
England of the United Kingdom to say no to the appointment of a Catholic bishop, he would veto it. Um, now, the Catholic aristocracy, who played along in order to survive, kept their faith, protected their people, um, they didn't mind so much about the veto. They thought once, you know, once we've got our Catholic clergy and got our bishops, you know, it's not going to bother us so much. But the Catholic clergy in England, particularly someone called Bishop John Milner, and the Irish said, in, and I won't use the language, what on earth uh, are you saying that a, a, a Protestant king is going to appoint our bishops? Although the veto really meant that he would say no to names proposed to him. And it became very important and seemed to be a possible breaking point. The, queen, the present queen has no veto over the appointment of the Catholic clergy, and I'm quite sure doesn't uh, wish to have one. But although it does have an effect, we've never had a Catholic prime minister, because a prime minister does have an advisory role about Protestant appointments. As you've already mentioned, um, Ireland is incredibly bound up in this question of um, Catholic emancipation. And if we can talk about the Act of Union um, and how uh, they were bound up in this question as well. Irish and English history gets very complicated at this time. Um, the Irish had a rebellion in 1798. Um, we're just coming up, of course, for the long Napoleonic Wars. And the position of Ireland, this is seeing it from the English point of view, the position of Ireland was deeply threatening. The French could land on the shores of Ireland and then proceed to threaten England that way and perhaps invade her. And so um, it was felt that the best thing to do really was to unite Ireland with England. The Act of Union it was done for security's sake. Before that, Ireland had her own parliament. Um, the two parliaments were put together, except the English one swallowed the Irish parliament. And Ireland, therefore, was part of Britain, the United Kingdom, um, well, until it all ended in another century. And can we talk a little about the anti-Irish prejudices that saw the Catholic major majority as barbarous? I use the word barbarous about the Irish, quoting, I may say. Yes. <laughs> I'm uh, Irish myself. <laughs> Um, because they used it, and because barbarous means something different, savages, you know, and I thought that expressed the, the prejudices, I have to say, of even a civilised man like Sir Robert Peel, he refers to them as barbarous. Um, the English are ruling the Protestant ascendancy, they're called, um, and then they regard the rest. Um, we have to make a, a comparison to slaves because... Um, movements against slavery uh, were going on, beginning to go on. Um, and we have to say that though the Irish weren't literally treated as slaves, there was something in the mentality that the Irish were inferior. Your book includes a fantastic cast of characters and, and out of this um, prejudice, uh, a key figure who's kind of central in your book is uh, Daniel O'Connell, who whose non-violence, whose policies of non-violence and um, charisma 
defy these prejudices against the Irish. Can we talk a little bit about his background and his impact on this issue? Yes, we can talk about my hero, <laughs> Daniel O'Connell, King Dan. <laughs> He's a wonderful man, um, tremendously sort of glamorous, really, swirling about Dublin in his cloak. When I was choosing the illustrations, I was determined to have one with him with his cloak, and I found one. <laughs> um, he was um, born in Ireland, Catholic, obviously, um, as was the Duke of Wellington, Protestant. Um, he was born in a sort of shack in the West, um, obviously very clever, became a lawyer, um, but he had a passion. His passion really was to reunite Ireland. And for him, Catholic emancipation was a vital step. And he was, of course, quite right. But instead of saying, you know, let's have a rebellion, which would have been a failure, um, but he, he, he didn't go that way at all. With a fine legal mind, he said, you know, let's do it non-violently and constantly said that, I mean, one rather funny thing, all alcohol was confiscated at an important Irish election um, and that was, a, that was a strong step forward, you know, to have no alcohol at an election because people on the whole regarded, you know, a, a bit of a drink as being their right when they were voting. And for O'Connell and many others, um, this idea of Catholic emancipation um, was very tied up um, with the idea of uh, the desire for the repeal of the Acts of Union. Well, it, it made absolute sense. Once you can have Catholics in Parliament, not only MPs, by the way, but also peers, um, then you can organise voting to repeal the Act of Union. Um, if you're not allowed it to the Parliament, which was once yours but has now been swallowed up, the Irish Parliament, then it's very difficult to know how to go about it unless you... Um, what do you do if you believe in civil rights or helpless? What was the fear that it might have meant for the royals as well? Well, the royals got in terrible tizzy, you know. Are we going to have a Catholic king? Are you going to have... Catholic princes, you know, are cardinals going to be welcome everywhere? Whereas, in fact, the first cardinal to come officially, Cardinal Consalvi, became a great friend of George IV, and there's a portrait of him at Windsor. You know, there was a lack, as with all prejudice, there was a lack of logic about it. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. So we've talked about uh, King George III and how he... Um, changed his stance um, towards Catholic emancipation. Uh, perhaps we could look now at 
um, his son, the Prince of Wales, the future Prince Regent and King George IV, um, and his own relationship with um, Catholics and, and Catholic emancipation. Well, the Prince of Wales, who became Prince Regent when his father went mad and finally George IV, was apparently very pro-Catholic um, when he was Prince of Wales. He had a secret marriage ceremony with Moriah Fitzherbert, who was uh, a Catholic widow, actually, twice widowed with no children. He's much in love with. They had a secret ceremony, and that satisfied her, you know, that she wasn't in a state of sin. She was a very honourable woman. The trouble is it was illegal by English law. By English law, people within the succession to the throne had to get the sovereign's permission, and they couldn't marry Catholics. This, by the way, remained the law until the other day in 2013. Princes or princesses can now marry Catholics. So he uh, had this relationship with Mariah Fitzherbert. Um, whether a legitimate union or not, um, it was clearly a very uh, important union for him. But then his stance later changed. Yes, then um, he had to marry and have legitimate children. Her children, if she'd had them, wouldn't have been legitimate, in, wouldn't have been able to succeed to the throne. And he had a disastrous marriage to Carolina Brunswick um, and one child who died in childbirth. Anyway, he becomes um, king in 1820. And then it turns out that in some kind of... Um, obsession about his father, he seems to have taken on his father's conscience. And then it gets very, very tricky, because will he sign? When the Duke has rallied the Tories, when Dan has the Irish in control and has got elected to a seat, even though he can't take it, um, you know, then there's the question of the King's conscience again. So although my book's called The King and the Catholics, King stands for the monarchy. There are two kings. And once again, I think we should be fair to George IV. Fairly fair. <laughs> um, I think he was taking a lot of laudanum at that time and a great deal of drink, say nothing of food. Um, and I don't think he really had the keen intellect, but he was sure that, once again, it was his coronation oath and that he was betraying it if he didn't keep to it and if he allowed emancipation. So everything got held up and it gets extremely dramatic. I always don't want to give away the end of the story, you know, <laughs> whether he will... And there are sort of midnight trips and visits, you know, and who's going to persuade him? He has a mistress called Lady Cunningham um, who seems quite well disposed towards Catholics. A sensible woman, will she persuade him more? You know, so it, it, it's an exciting story. Indeed, and um, without giving away the, the, the dramatics of the story, because it is remarkable. Um, we've already talked about um, O'Connell on one side of things. Um, if we could talk about Arthur Wellesley, the um, Duke of Wellington, because, uh, as you mentioned earlier, he's also from an Irish background, yeah. but a Protestant one. Yeah. Um, how, how did he first, um, through his military career and then as the Prime Minister, um, inform this struggle? Um, I think the Duke of Wellington was what we would now call a natural conservative, although the word conservative wasn't used. Um, he wanted to get on with things, um, and, you know, he thought the natural rulers should rule. 
those were his kind of views. But at the same time, he wasn't a brilliant general for nothing, and he was a brilliant general and a wonderful strategist. And he had great power over people, um, the power of authority, of having won battles during this period, you see, after 1815, he's the victor of Waterloo, and people bow to his moral authority. And he finally decides that the state in Ireland is so insecure, if they're going to rise up, you know, anything might happen. And the realistic solution is to give them emancipation, really very late on. Um, I mean, obviously was sort of going through his mind, but he more or less expects everyone to about turn and go march, you know, when he says. But that really, that's the sort of... Oh, he was born in Ireland, as you said. Um, he was what we would now call Anglo-Irish and um, in the House of Lords. And that was one great element. And, and the other great element was, of course, Daniel O'Connell saying, we're all united but we are not going to use physical violence, which is a very bold step, you know, but was frightfully successful, thank goodness. Can we talk a little about the climactic um, events, if you like, or at least the way um, I read them, of O'Connell um, un- being unable to take his seat and the mobilisation that followed? Daniel O'Connell, in a bold move, stood for Parliament in the summer of 1828, Um, although Catholics weren't allowed then in Parliament. And he was elected in County Clare to Malta's election, which ended with terrific triumph, with priests apparently marching their congregations to go and vote for him. You know, he was tremendously popular. Well, then you get, and he says to the people on election night, look at this, it's the first time you've ever seen a Catholic MP. Now the question is, what is going to happen about the oath. When the bill was passed, um, changing the oath MPs took the next year, he presents himself in Parliament to take the changed oath. The changed oath does not deny the Virgin Mary and say ugly things about transubstantiation of the Catholic Church. It's just a positive oath in favour of the monarchy, you know, and loyalty. So a perfectly reasonable oath for English MP. So there is Daniel O'Connell, but he's given the old oath um, on the grounds that he was elected before the bill was passed. This was a very malicious thing to do. It only increased O'Connell's popularity with anybody who supported Catholic emancipation and was never going to hold him off for very long because he went away, it was another election, triumphant re-election, and he makes his speech in Parliament. Um, but it it shows that, you know, in spite of the greatness of letting him in, they couldn't just do that little extra thing and let him in, the new oath. One figure in particular um, stood out as, well, Robert Peel, who yes. does uh, quite a remarkable about-face. Could you talk about his feelings um, early on towards um, Irish Catholics and then his feelings later? Um, Ro- Robert Peel... Uh, was one of those who described Irish Catholics as barbarous or barbarians. And he was a fairly uh, conventional um, Tory MP, except he came from a slightly lower social background to some of them. Um, You know, 
what we now say in industry, it wasn't literally industry, but, you know, and there were those nasty jokes about him not being able to say his H's, which always embarrass one about people in another age. Um, but he was clever, conscientious, um, attractive, and, you know, he did well. He went and was secretary, you know, in Ireland, and therefore got a great experience of what the Irish were like. And nevertheless, he continued to be against emancipation. You know, it's just not what the Protestant um, country needed, the Protestant establishment which should run it, um, until the very end, in, um, August 1828. And then he privately wrote, saying, I'm beginning to think it might be a good thing to let them have it. And then... Um, with Wellington, he wrote a famous letter saying, I'm, I'm switching, if you like, he didn't actually use that word. And it was an enormous event when he changed his mind. He'd been battling against it, and now he was going to battle for it. He was a man of honour, so he resigned his seat, which was Oxford University, in order to fight it again. Lost it, but was then in the way of the world, found another seat, a man resigned, um, and he found another seat. So he's back there to make the crucial speech. Quite a saga. The Tories continued to hold it against him that he changed his mind, which he did. Um, and that had an effect on the next crisis about the Reform Bill. I, I should add one thing. Um, I'm descended from Robert Peel. <laughs> this was actually something I'd love to talk about. Uh, um, yes. And I believe um, the Duke of Wellington as well is someone in your ancestry. Oh, well... The, um, the great Duke of Wellington married Lady Kitty Pakenham, who was my great, 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 great oh, aunt. Well, uh, this this is something that really intrigued me, actually. Um, what Were there any u unique challenges that you found to writing about your ancestors? Or No, it, uh, no challenge at all, just fun. I'm a, a member of the Peel Society, you know. I love history and it's a nice connection. But um, I have to say that um, when I was writing about Peel before he changed his mind, I thought, I really would rather have been descended from Disraeli than <laughs> <laughs> it came right. <laughs> Wonderful. So this remarkable half a century, um, we've gone from very bloody riots in the streets um, against Catholics to um, the Catholic Relief Act in 1829. So could you um, explain what was achieved by that act? Um, the Act of 1829, the Duke of Wellington said to the King George IV, um, they've got everything. It wasn't quite true. For one thing, there was a bit of willy-dilly in Ireland and 40-shilling freeholders, people who voted by right of having a freehold, that amount of money, would, would, had their votes taken away and they were the people who'd really elected O'Connell. That was just rather silly. Um, religious people were still not supposed to Catholics, not supposed to wear their costumes in public, but that's just sort of vanished. They did get, however, um, the right to sit in Parliament, the right for Catholic peers to sit in Parliament. In they went, the Catholic peers, um, not having sat there, I suppose, since 1688, you know. Um, and 
commissioned to the army, the army was full of Catholics who pretended not to be Catholics. That was nice. All many stupid little annoying laws, you know, were swept away. They were acknowledged as being full citizens. And the debt to soldiers in the Waterloo Wars, you know, was acknowledged that these were noble fighters, didn't matter what their religion was. It was altogether a very civilised move. So this book has been uh, a number of years in the making then. Yes. And so, so why now? Why is it the time for this particular book? I think perhaps, I didn't think it consciously, but now I think because we live in an age where um, people's right to have their own religion is highly questioned in the daily news all the time, including their duties if they do have a religion. You know, they must behave well. And what is good behaviour? You know, and how much can people bring their religion into civil behaviour? All of these things are in the air. I think that must have influenced me. But in the short term, it was doing a book about the Reform Bill. Um, all the time I was conscious of Catholic emancipation, like the elephant in the room, but with a Pope's hat on, a tiara. <laughs> and I kept thinking, oh, I'd love to know a little more. And then I said, no, no, well, I'm writing about reform. Um, but I was full of curiosity because, I mean, when I write, I want to find out. I mean, I then want to tell you, but first of all, I want to find out myself. That was Antonia Fraser. The King and the Catholics, The Fight for Rights, 1829, is out now, published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. Now, just before we go, here's a reminder that tickets are currently on sale for our 2018 History Weekends. They're taking place in the historic cities of Winchester and York this October, and feature some of Britain's best-known historians and authors. Among them, Lucy Worsley, Bernard Cornwell, Ian Kershaw, Susanna Lipscomb, Michael Wood and Dan Jones. Head to historyweekend.com for more information and to purchase tickets. And we have now come to the end of today's episode. But do listen in next Monday, when we'll be looking at the history of Grenfell Tower. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.